this is David Weiss for the Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers, Episode 3, Rise of the Euro, Part 1. It was the late 1990s, and I was wandering around downtown Cambridge, Massachusetts. I was visiting my best friend from high school, who was studying evolutionary biology at Harvard University. I'd taken the MBTA to Harvard Square and had some time to kill, and in my pocket, I had the address of a store to check out in nearby Putnam Square. I didn't know it, but I was probably only a few blocks from one of the only meccas in North America for the kind of games I loved, a club on the North Shore of Boston run by a game designer named Alan R. Moon. By the time I turned up in Putnam Square, he'd begun running an annual invitation-only convention in Chicopee, Massachusetts, called The Gathering of Friends. It's still going strong today. We'll get into Alan Moon's story in episode 6. But back to me in Putnam Square. The store I was looking for was called Games People Play, and it was a hobby games store. I hope you heard my air quotes there. Meaning its specialty was not mass market games, those you could get at Toys R Us, but games from smaller publishers that catered to a niche audience. People like me. I'd read in the October 1995 issue of Games Magazine that they sold games from Germany, which at the time were unavailable in Toronto. You had to go down to the States to buy the good board games. The article in that issue was called Spielen Sie Deutsch? which means, do you play in German? It hyped a new wave of games coming out of Germany that seemed to be a thing apart from the usual fare from Parker Brothers or Milton Bradley. The best of these games all had high-quality components, clear and focused design, got the players immediately involved, and emphasized strategy over luck. And although these games weren't hard to learn, it added, you needed logic and reasoning ability to play them well. That sounded like my kind of game. The article ended with the addresses of a handful of American stores that were known to carry these German games. Games People Play was one of them. I entered the store and was immediately enveloped by its embrace of esoteric games and puzzles of all sorts, including the war games I still occasionally pecked at in my spare time. Added to this was an assortment of puzzles, magic kits, and educational toys. This was comfort. This was home. But which one to buy? The games article had reviewed a few of these briefly, which had come out over the past few years, but the one which got the most column inches and seemed to be generating the most buzz was really recent. Die Siedler von Catan. Two things really set it apart for the author of the article. First, it had multiple paths to victory. The winner needed 10 points, but you could get those points lots of different ways. Not like Risk, say, where the only way to win was to slog away for hours until you wiped out everyone else on the board. The Siedler took a couple of hours max, and there was no player elimination. Even better. Secondly, it had a modular board. That was something I associated with tactical war games, not family strategy games. Tentpole games like Monopoly and Scrabble, not to mention chess and backgammon, had well-known strategies based on board position, whose success was based on the fact that it was the same board every time. 
So the idea of a modular board intrigued me. I found the shelves with the German games, and look! There now seem to be an English edition of Die Siedler von Catan, now called The Settlers of Catan. I plunked down my money and bought it. The box cover had the designer's name on it, which I'd never seen in a Milton Bradley or Parker Brothers game unless it was a celebrity endorsing it like Omar Sharif and Mastermind. Clearly in Germany, they cared about such things. So who was this Klaus Teuber guy? And why were all these games coming out of Germany of all places? And what makes Germany, even today, a country where more board games are sold per capita than anywhere else in the world? and where board games are reviewed in mainstream media alongside movies and books. Klaus Teuber was born in Rai-Breitenbach in central Germany in 1952. He played with toy soldiers as a child, but really got into games only during his compulsory military service as a way of keeping his wife and young son entertained while they lived on base. In his early 20s, he inherited his father's dental appliance business. Suddenly, he was responsible for 60 employees and had to work long hours to keep the business afloat. For a long time, game design was something he did in his basement to let off steam after a frustrating day at work. He never imagined making money from it. Teuber, along with others such as Rainer Knizia, Uwe Rosenberg, and Andreas Seyforth, all of whom we'll be looking at later in this series, all grew up in post-World War II Germany. Stuart Woods, in his book Eurogames, The Design, Culture, and Play of Modern European Board Games, outlines what to me is a convincing explanation for why this place and this era proved to be such an incubator of talent. For a start, even in the Middle Ages, individual German city-states were famous for their high-quality wooden toys. The invention of kindergarten in the mid-19th century made Germany the crucible for early childhood education, and with it the idea of learning through play. Ravensburger, which is still one of the largest game and toy publishers in the world, was founded in 1900. By 1914, Germany was the toy capital of the world. World War I and its subsequent economic collapse, followed by the emigration of many major manufacturers, who happened to be Jewish, during the Nazi era, dealt major blows to the toy industry. And then followed the almost total destruction of all German industrial production by the end of World War II. The rebuilding and recovery of German industry after World War II also benefited the toy and game sector, and with Ravensburger again in the lead, exports began to rise. However, because Ravensburger did not own licenses for major games like Scrabble and Monopoly, it was forced to innovate by buying designs of its own, and had to be extra receptive when fledgling local designers sent in their ideas. Furthermore, as part of Germany's denazification program after the end of the war, any cultural pursuits that seemed to encourage violence or cutthroat competition were discouraged or even outlawed. For example, Risk was threatened with a ban when Parker Brothers finally introduced it in Germany in 1982. This meant that German designers of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s shied away from games with player elimination, gravitating instead to more indirect, non-zero-sum conflict, or even cooperative games. Finally, German popular culture of the time embraced the idea that play 
was not just for children. It was a family activity that parents did with their children. So arguably, family game night was invented in Germany. The result of all these factors was not only were Teuber and his playmates surrounded by games with high production values, they also grew up with different gaming experiences and expectations than their English or North American contemporaries. And as this post-war generation grew up, they looked for outlets to express their passion for games. There were magazines like Die Purple Review and Spielbox, which both saw print by the early 1980s, each containing interviews, reviews, and fan-made expansions to published games. Germany had also begun to host two of the largest showcases of toys and games in the world, the Nuremberg Toy Fair and the Essen Game Fair. The Essen Fair was and is open to the public, and more than 150,000 people currently attend Essen over the fair's four days. But perhaps the biggest contribution German media made to fostering a board game culture in their country was the inauguration of the Spiel des Jahres, Game of the Year, or SDJ for short. It was started in 1978 by a group of journalists looking to raise the bar for game design. Very quickly, it became a huge influencer. SDJ winners could expect to see sales of their games increase a hundredfold, upwards of half a million units. The possibility of making money from designing and publishing original games became less remote. In 1981, Teuber was reading Patricia McKillop's trilogy Die Schule der Ratzelmeister, School of the Riddle Masters. This was a book about a ghost who challenges a man to a series of riddles. He enjoyed the book so much he didn't want it to end. Many of us have felt that way about a good book, but never acted on it. Teuber did. He turned the riddle challenge into a game, which he called Barbarossa und die Ratzelmeister. In English, Barbarossa and the Riddle Master. The prototype stayed in his house for seven years. But in 1988, he finally decided to show it to a publisher, ASS Altenburger Spielkarten, and they snapped it up, and it went on to win the Spiel des Jahres for that year. By 1995, Teuber had won the Spiel des Jahres two more times. In 1990, for Adolf Verpflichtet, a set collection game, later released in English as Hoity Toity, and again in 1991 for Drunter und Drüber, a game where players lay square tiles on an empty grid to rebuild a Wild West town. You might remember from episode one that Drunter und Drüber was one of the three games that I picked up at that garage sale that kindled my interest in modern board games. But... Even with all the success and sales, Teuber was still doing his day job and running his dental appliance business in Darmstadt to make ends meet. Giving up his day job was not yet an option. He wasn't making enough money. When Teuber won the Spiel des Jahres for Druntur and Drubur, he had a dream that he was fishing on the shore of a pond and landed the biggest fish. The dream may have come from what he was reading at around that time about Vikings and their voyages of exploration. He was kind of obsessed with Vikings at the time. He decided his next project would be a game around the question of what happened 
after the Vikings discovered a new uninhabited land. Teuber started constructing prototypes using square tiles to represent different areas on the island. The tiles would start the game face down, and players would flip them over as they explored the island. The resources on the tiles would help players to build settlements and then cities and eventually metropolises. Most weekends, he would test the latest version of his game with his wife and child. Using their feedback, he kept simplifying and refining the rules. Metropolises went out the window, for example. But perhaps the biggest breakthrough is when he realized that a square grid was, from a game design standpoint, less than ideal for his purposes. And the reason for this has to do with geometry. An island made up of squares has an awkward coastline full of hard-to-reach corners, and besides, it doesn't look very natural. Also, since Teuber had players building road networks along the edges of the squares, there were difficulties around what to do when two roads met at right angles. If he allowed roads to cross each other, it would be too easy to expand one's territory. But if he disallowed crossing roads, it became far too easy to block opponents. Also, since settlements and cities occupied the vertices in the grid at the corners of the squares, they could theoretically draw resources from four adjacent tiles, which made resources too plentiful and the game lost tension. Changing the tiles to hexagons solved both problems. Roads could be blocked, but not mutually blocking, and each settlement or city drew resources from three tiles instead of four, because hexagons meet three to a corner. Resources became more scarce, and tension was restored. Now, the benefits of a hexagonal grid had been discovered way back in the late 1950s by Charles Roberts at Avalon Hill. And by 1990s, hex grids were the standard for the majority of war games. But since Teuber had had no exposure to those militaristic games as a child, he had to discover it all on his own. Though he may have been influenced by popular train games like Dampfrost, which we'll be looking at in episode 6, that also used hex grid maps. He settled on an island that was itself six-sided, three tiles to a side, a total of 19 tiles. He abandoned, for now, the idea of starting with the tiles face down. Each tile had one of five terrains on it. Sounds like magic. The gathering, that is. Forest, mudflat, meadow, field, or mountain. Each terrain generated a resource. Wood, brick, sheep, wheat, and ore, respectively. But, because there were only three tiles of each type, it was virtually guaranteed that no player would be able to access all five types of resources, which incentivized trading between players. Players could purchase new settlements, upgrade them to cities, which doubled their output, build roads, or buy development cards, which gave the owner a random benefit from bonus but secret victory points to extra resources to soldiers for an army. The next problem for Teuber were the intersections on the coast. They were adjacent to only two land tiles, thus generating resources less often. This in turn discouraged players from ever building on the coast, making the board more cramped than it needed to be. Teuber balanced this out by making some of these intersections into ports, which allowed players building there to trade with the bank instead of each other. 
which came in handy later in the game as competition heated up and players' positions solidified and they became less willing to trade. Now, players had a reason to build toward the ocean. The game started with players choosing two starting locations each for their initial settlements. To prevent crowding, he forbade players from building settlements next to each other. The second settlement build generated resources automatically before the game started, so each player began the game with a different set of resources. This asymmetric setup was unusual in games from America, probably stemming from its inherent democratic impulses or something. Each player started their turn by rolling two dice, but instead of dice controlling movement, which was traditionally the case, they determined which tiles produced resources, because every tile had a number on it from 2 to 12. The sum of the dice was compared to the numbers on the tiles, and every tile whose number matched the die roll generated resources to every player who had settlements, even if it wasn't that player's turn. If a seven was rolled, which was the most common outcome, a robber struck, and any player with more than seven resources had to give half back to the bank, discouraging players from hoarding resources. In addition, the player rolling the seven got to place a robber token on one of the intersections between the tiles, blocking all three of those tiles from producing until someone else moved it. Thus, every player was at least partially invested in every turn, and the game acquired just a hint of adversariality. Gamers call that Take That, and that spiced things up. After rolling, the next step was to trade, or to ask for trades. I need sheep, you might say, and I'll pay wheat or brick for it. After trading, the player purchased new things using the resources they now had. Settlements, roads, cards, and so on. And once that was done, they passed the dice to the next player, and a new turn began. As I said before, the game was erased to 10 points. Settlements were worth 1, and could be upgraded to cities that were worth 2. The player who had the longest continuous road earned a card worth 2 points, as did the player who had the largest army. But those cards could be won or stolen by other players who managed to build a longer road or a larger army. Toyber knew his game had made it when family game night at his house became intense and competitive. Catan, as it's now called, is our second game changer. It spearheaded a wave of games by European designers which all seemed to share Catan's sensibility, design ethos, and production values. These games came to be seen collectively as a genre which was at first called German games, since most of these designers were German. But as other designers from France, the UK, and Eastern Europe came on board, the games came to be called Euros. In part two of this episode, we'll see what happened when The Settlers of Catan was released in 1995 and how it permanently changed the tabletop scene, from how games were marketed to what tabletop fans came to expect from their idols and their games. That was part one of episode three of The Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And don't flip that table. <laughs>